This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Wayne Muller. Wayne has dedicated his life to the service of others, having spent the last 20 years working closely with some of the most disadvantaged members of society. He's the founder of Bread for the Journey, a nationwide relief organization, and TREAT, a community-based AIDS research and care group. Wayne is the author of the national bestseller, Legacy of the Heart, the spiritual advantages of a painful childhood, how then shall we live, and most recently, a life of being, having, and doing enough. With Sounds True, Wayne has created several audio programs, including Sabbath, Restoring the Sacred Rhythm of Rest and Delight, The Spiritual Gifts of a Painful Childhood, and How Then Shall We Live, where he weaves poetry with true stories of love, courage, grief, and transformation in order to show how beauty and wisdom can come to us at unexpected times. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Wayne and I spoke about how the experience of being enough is born in relationship and how we need each other and the power of reaching out to people who feel isolated. We also talked about how we can see painful events in our childhood as giving us the opportunity to develop certain unique and special capacities. We also talked about making time in our lives to relax into enoughness and the importance of not letting ourselves be swept away by the busyness of the culture. Here's my conversation with Wayne Muller. In preparing for this conversation, Wayne, I was reflecting on your body of work, the books that you've written and the audio programs that you've created with Sounds True. And I was contemplating what really are the central themes that Wayne keeps coming back to in different ways again and again. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to make my life easy, and I'm simply going to ask you, what do you feel are the central themes that keep returning again and again in your work in different ways for you? You know, it's funny that you uh, that you asked that question because I literally last week um, made for myself a list of all of the things that I had done in my life. Not everything I had done, obviously. That would be a very long list. Um, woke up, brushed teeth, um, 
but all of the projects I've been involved with from when I was a teenager and volunteered um, at the local cerebral palsy clinic when I volunteered when Head Start first got um, going in the in the 1960s, um, all the things I did in college, the things I did in uh, graduate school, and and I, I I listed them all partly because I was beginning to forget. Um, not forget who I was, but to forget that sort of first fidelity um, that I think you know you're talking about that ultimate um, covenant with uh, what's the deepest, most sacred thing that we put on the altar of our heart's attention, and we all get called by different things in different ways. You've been called to. Um, listen for and lift up the voices of so many wonderful people who, before you met them, were quite beautiful, uh, lovely voices, but not heard by very many people. And that's one of your gifts to the world. Um, I, when I when I looked at the list of all the things that that I had done, it, it invariably. Um, kept circling around a, a couple things. One is a fundamental um, belief in the wholeness of people. And, I mean, that can sound really glib, but um, but it's been tested. It's been tested working in the slums of the um, the barrios of, of outside of Lima, Peru, during the um, period of time during the Reagan administration, when I was living with the Marinol brothers and sisters, when they were being murdered by people on the U.S. government payroll, um, and and in the, the lives of the poorest of the poor, and and working with multiple offending juvenile delinquents, almost all of whom came from very impoverished, um, usually Hispanic families in Southern California, working with gang members and uh, people in prison, working um, during the AIDS, uh, the height of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s, people whose often very young life was suddenly endangered and often in those days taken. Um, and so it's not it's not a, a wholeness that's um, that's a kind of cheap grace. It's a wholeness that, in the face of um, people uh, who I've known who grew up in Cambodia during the Pol Pot regime, where they, as children, watched their family um, murdered in front of their eyes, and still grew up to be people who um, wanted to help other young people find their way in a world that didn't make sense um, on on any level. What is it in those people that regardless of how they're um, broken down or have their heart shredded by the jagged intention of a world um, intent only on its own greedy satisfaction, um, what is it that refuses to be broken? Um, what is it that remains luminous? And is there some way that my being in their company 
and knowing that, feeling that, trusting that, as not not as a theory, but almost as a as a law, just like gravity. If I if I drop uh, a stone from my hand, the fact that it will hit the ground is not for me an issue of faith. It's a fact. This this is also a fact for me that people have this wholeness, and somehow by my being in their company, and it's not that I give anything to them it's more that if i can mirror that in any way for long enough for them to begin to see or feel or imagine that that's true for them um then i think that's one of the um gifts that i hope that i bring to people and situations that's a a kind of a thread that runs through a lot of where I've been called, the people I've met, the situations I've been in, the way I've been in community with people um, is basically you have to bank on something. You know, you you put your chips on black and red, or, or you have to choose one or the other. Spin the wheel. You can't sit on the fence. And so, do you believe that people have this goodness and wholeness in them or not? And if you do, then then what's our role in the face of that? And for me, it's to try and be uh, honorable, honest company to mirror that wholeness to people who have forgotten it or lost it or because of what was done to them or taken from them. Um, uh, they can't even imagine that that there's any uh, shred of wholeness left. So that being a central theme, you said there were several. Was that really the main one that you saw, or were there a couple others that you want to underscore here at the beginning of our conversation? I think I think another one uh, has to do with um, the this allowing people to feel seen and known with mercy accurately for who they are and in a way that helps liberate that wholeness i've did uh, several years of work in mississippi recently with um people uh black white rich poor young old people in people with a great deal of power people who were almost literally voiceless um who hadn't been able to collaborate for generations because of all the blood in the soil between them. And um, a lot of that has to do with the fact that nobody felt seen or heard accurately. There were so many stories and myths and, and stereotypes that people had to live with that it had galvanized into a chronic mistrust so that it wasn't that people in Mississippi don't know how to make things better. It's that each has a piece of the solution which they hold really close to their chest and they're afraid to give it up or even share it or even let someone else know they have it because maybe they'll take that too and that's the last thing they have. And letting people feel safe enough to see and know one another 
um, helps liberate that wholeness and whatever capital each person has, which might be wisdom capital or love capital or experience capital or creativity capital, um, once they're seen and known and can trust one another enough to imagine they can work together, then what can happen in that collaboration multiplies that capital into what they used to call the commonwealth. Um, I mean, literally, you know, when people would talk about the commonwealth of Massachusetts or the commonwealth of Virginia, it wasn't just a, a governmental term. It was a, a, a sort of political, theological conception. You know, there were places that were the commons that belonged to everybody, and as long as everyone was free to contribute their capital, weaving that capital together creates a common wealth. And I think um, I think I've always just presumed that that was always true and available to people. So regardless of what financial capital people have, um, I always assume somebody has something of value to bring to the table. And by bringing different people to the table, and they feel, if they feel safe enough to share it, um, uh, the the wealth that can spontaneously um, erupt uh, in those um, in those circles in those gatherings um, can have just taken my breath away. Now, Wayne, you know it's interesting to me because as I'm listening carefully to what you're saying about this wholeness that you see in people, I think most people experience themselves as lacking in some way. I'm lacking the number of friends I wish I had, or I'm lacking the kind of really exciting career that I wish I had, or I'm lacking the amount of money. I mean, we could go on and on that I wish I had. And so how do you think people can work themselves with their own sense of lack? Well, you know, it's interesting uh, having... um spent a lot of time working as a therapist and and that being one of my uh earlier careers before I you know went off to the seminary um you know there's a presumption in psychotherapy that one can do that by oneself that uh inside of our uh soul our psyche our uh spirit we can find with enough therapy or even with enough um, spiritual practice, enough meditation, enough prayer, enough worship, enough ritual, we can find that wholeness in ourselves. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm much more suspicious of that possibility now than I was then, because in my life, um, the most reliable way I can find that in myself if I have lost it and we all know when we've lost it because it's such a terribly lonely place when we feel like that deep insufficiency that that you were talking about um i i need my friends i need people who know me and and love me and 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 are good honest um companions who not will not just tell me the good things about myself but will tell me the truth about myself in in love and somehow it, what it's one of the things we do for and with one another in community in um in circles in relationships 
um, I, I, I think the um, the sort of hyper individualism of our culture um, puts a, a, a kind of um, presumption uh, of some ability that if we put our mind to it, we can do almost anything by ourselves. And I think that's the older I get, the more perverse I realize that is, and ultimately harmful because people then don't reach out for help because they feel ashamed that they're not good enough to reach out. And then it's a death spiral from there because if the if the salvation is going to come from loving one another, if you feel like you have to reach a certain um, level of um, self-worth before you reach out, well then... Uh, it, it may never, ever happen. In your most recent book, A Life of Being, Having, and Doing Enough, I think the most favorite line for me in the book was, enough is born in relationship. And, you know, I think that's really what you're pointing to here. I wonder if you can say more about that. Yeah, because it, it's all contextual. Um, we're part of things infinitely larger than ourselves. We're part of families. We're part of, uh, we have partners. We have friends. We live in a world. We live in communities. We live um, in different groups of uh, people of our uh, of different ages, different races, different nationalities, uh, different belief systems. And um, part of the way that we um, harvest the seed that we plant in the soil of the world is through being in communion with other people. And I don't mean communion in a religious sense, but, um, you know, I know that having started um, or helped start, you know, this this charity, Bread for the Journey, now some 25 uh, years ago, you know, small groups of volunteers, you know, around the country get together. They uh, help raise a little bit of money. They find people in the community who have some passion to heal something or create something or build something. It often doesn't need a lot of money, not a lot of financial capital, um, but it might need a thousand dollars or. $1,500 for somebody to buy some equipment or get a room or get um, a license to do something. And what that does then is it brings out of the woodwork all kinds of other people who have gifts they didn't know they had. Someone n- realizes they can help um, uh, keep the books or or they can uh, cook or they can build something or they can um, put a brochure together or they can run a meeting or they can gather volunteers and without that person feeling supported and galvanized into action all those people would not have necessarily discovered their gifts a lot of times our gifts are pulled out by the needs of the world we're walking through and if we remain isolated by ourselves then 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 who will call our name and and say excuse me it seems like you have a gift for this would you mind sharing it with us and so many people who get involved in so many things are surprised by getting involved because they didn't know what their gift was until it sort of got recognized by somebody else and many times we can see 
the gifts of other people, you know, just the way that you, you know, recognize people who have had something to say that maybe they didn't even know that they had to say. And, and by lifting them up, they then can find their belonging in a gift they'd always had but never really fully appreciated or could drink from until there was that collaboration between you and uh, and them and somehow that collaboration helped them have the gift they had it but it allowed it you know like a germinating you know seed in the spring to sort of break ground and and become visible whereas it may have lain dormant for their whole life I mean, who, who knows how these things work but it seems to me that that's as often as not how people's gifts get recognized and then come to fruition but i want to circle back for a moment wayne to that person that you were talking about who has some sense of, you know, I'm not worthy enough to reach out to other people. Uh And, you know, Uh you mentioned how that creates, of course, this sort of catch-22. They think they're not worthy, and then they stay isolated, and they don't get this relational mirroring that helps them birth their gifts. What Uh can you say to that person who has that sense, you know, I'm, I'm not worthy? Well, you know, I mean, you know, as the Buddha said, you know, in isolation is the world's greatest misery. And, you know, one of the challenges of our culture right now is that um, not only do people have a natural predisposition when they're feeling at their, mo- at their least worthy to isolate, but now we have so many technologies that not only support but tacitly encourage people to be able to seem like they're in relationship while they're essentially by themselves. You know, they can get on social media, they can um, text people, they can email people, they can um, tweet people. Um, But it's a real question as to whether that ultimately bears fruit in in a real relationship. Um, Everyone I come in contact with, um, you know, if I'm um, being the person I'm called to be, the best I can do is um, offer my mirror to whoever shows up at my door. Um, to people who are quite convinced that they're not worthy and have sort of made a choice and a decision to remain in that um, insulated um, despair, um, that's a really hard one. You know, uh, to um, you know, it, it's it's like. You know, when um, people in AA talk about somebody hitting bottom before they're willing to make a change, um, the degree of ache that people can have uh, by following the thread of that unworthiness all the way to the bottom of this dry well of their um, inner life, um, you know, all I can do is, is pray that that will be the bottom that will jettison some reaching out on some level to someone um, for some kind of company um, because you can't sort of uh, at least I, I you know I can't go around and find people who um, you know who isolate themselves and and feel deeply uh, deeply unworthy um, but I think the function of community 
um, is to know and notice when people are beginning to withdraw, people are beginning to disappear, people are beginning to go missing, um, not just physically but emotionally. Um, that's the um, one of the the, um, the beautiful uh, enzymes of of any community is that by by people watching out for one another. Um, we don't let people get too isolated. Um, you know, it used to happen a lot in the old, uh, in, in the 1980s when people were uh, dying of AIDS. Um, as often as they were living with AIDS, people would handle the diagnosis in a lot of different ways. And if someone started to disappear or people said, well, whatever happened to um, so-and-so, then, you know, people would, you know, as any family would, you know, as the parable of Jesus, you know, sort of, you know, leaving the 99 sheep to go to look for the one lost one uh, of, of the hundred, um, you know, which sort of doesn't make sense because then you could lose the 99. But but the, the, the sort of deeper point is that we, we really can't let people wander too far away from the fire around which we warm one another because that's how we survive and 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 for me you know I mean it's again it sounds sort of glib to say well community is the answer or what you know what what does that really mean but um but having been part of so many different communities the best ones seem to me anyway to be the ones that that notice when someone starts to go missing um and and that's part of our um our our ultimate job uh, in in the world i think is to keep our uh, peripheral vision open for those who are slinking away in shame from what they imagine they don't have to offer well, and as I'm listening to you, I'm seeing people in my peripheral vision, and I'm imagining listeners might be having the same experience, people that I could reach out to that I haven't. Yeah, and often, you know, you know, we imagine that it would require so much, but um, I know when I have had, um, you know, as you know, I've had a couple of life-threatening illnesses that... Um, uh, weakened and debilitated me, and there were definitely times when, um, when I was really ashamed of how little I could offer or bring to the table in terms of any kind of relationship or even conversation, and so I would isolate a little bit, and my friends would literally like show up with um, food and say, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> But, you know, as someone who feels like, you know, I'm the guy who's supposed to take care of people, then I feel like I should have something to bring to a relationship. And if I feel like I have nothing, then I can sometimes pull the covers over my head and just sort of hide out until I feel like I'll get strong enough to be worthy to give somebody a call. And and my friends really sort of, you know, uh, you know gave me hell for that. They said, you know, you're... You're depriving us of the gift of being able to be with you in the way that you've been with us, and that's really not fair, and we're not going to let you get away with it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think that's, 
you know, in part what 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 love and friendship and community, you know, is really about. It's holding one another accountable, not accountable in the sense that the economists or or business people or um, uh, people who count metrics talk about accountable, but uh, accountable in the deepest sense that we don't let anybody go missing. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. Sounds True hosts an annual wake-up festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. This is a gathering of spiritual teachers, artists, poets, and anyone interested in the many faces of awakening. For more information about the Wake Up Festival, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash wake up. And now back to Insights at the Edge. You know, I want to circle back for a moment, Wayne, to the theme that we started our conversation with, which has to do with you having this vision and fidelity to the idea of wholeness and that you see this in people and that then this is something you mirror for them. And I'm curious, here you are, you're working with different kinds of people, maybe people who have suffered a lot from all different kinds of experiences. What is it that you see, like if you were to say how you see their soul or how you see what in them has gone uncompromised or unbroken, no matter what they've been through, when you're with people and you're experiencing them, what's that like for you? If you could talk about it in terms of this wholeness, what you see? Well, you know, I've never actually thought about... uh about about naming it or describing it but as you were asking the question the the things that came to mind were um i always see something either something beautiful inside someone or something true that they can that they could say or know or bear witness to or something that could be of use to the world, um, uh, so you know. In, in a way, I, th- I see things that are beautiful, necessary, and true. Um, I guess I mean it's a kind of a trinity, <laughs> but 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 really, those those three things because um, people gift people's gifts are are are, are often uh, things that are useful um, um, people who often feel voiceless are, are those who who can bear witness to things that that are true that other people don't know and um, and often people who feel um, the most ashamed are often people who um, you know in some cases for example having worked with so many children who were abused in some way um, when they were young and often um, uh, the ones who are most intimately abused um, 
in in some sexual way or some intimate violation um, uh, curiously are often people who have a tremendous amount of light in them and and I find that that the most vile of predators tend to seek out the ones with the most light because they want to ingest that light themselves and then so they find those who have the most beauty inside them sadly of course those grow up to be men and women mostly women but certainly men as well who can never imagine ever feeling beautiful again not so much on the outside but on the inside and it's that internal beauty that initially um, magnetized um, uh, that violence. Not that they did it, not that they caused it, but that their luminosity was so desirable on some uh, inexplicable level. Um, helping people find that that sense of beauty and luminosity uh, instead of original sin, the original luminosity helping people recover that reclaim that or stand on it or or lift it up maybe for the first time in their conscious awareness um is um uh, you know when when people first when you just watch across somebody's eyes just the hint that they might be able to believe that that might be true you can see that it it, it, it like shakes their whole, um, their entire internal lineage, their entire neural pathway is 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 just shaken to the core because uh, it's just been impossible for their whole life that they could be beautiful and um, and have something beautiful to offer. Um, and, and it's such a tragedy, but it's such a beautiful thing when people are allow themselves to be convinced that they can imagine taking a step in that direction even. You know, as you're speaking, I'm thinking of the title of the book that you wrote that, you know, really put you on the map in many ways in terms of many people knowing about your writings, which is Legacy of the Heart, the spiritual advantages of a painful childhood. And, you know, I was always curious about this word, advantages. Do you really believe there are, you know, spiritual advantages in having a painful childhood? Yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, it, uh, again, um, uh, you know, not to be, um, um, you know, in any way disingenuous uh, about it, it's, it's, it's not that having it uh, pain or suffering or anguish in in childhood is by definition a good thing um or that it's advantageous to have a painful childhood it's 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 more that there there are always two things that are born out of a situation like that one are the things that break people down and the other are the things that sort of break people open which is a conversation i know that you and i have had many times before but if I, for example, growing up in an alcoholic family, um, 
uh, know that my father, or knew, you know, when I was a child, um, my father's um, been uh, passed for quite some years now. Um, I, I learned very quickly how to keep my mouth shut and be really quiet and watch things very, very carefully because um, uh, how the rest of the evening was going to go was going to depend on my ability to do that. And um, and so many people who lived as children in um, in the in the context of um, a kind of general um, zeitgeist of suffering, um, you know, had to learn to trust their intuition. They had to learn to know how to be still and quiet, which was one way to be invisible, so that if uh, the shooting was going to start, they weren't going to aim at you because you weren't moving. Um, uh, and so learning how to be still and quiet and trust your intuition and listen carefully to what people are saying beneath language um, are all um, things that healers and nuns and monks um, are, uh, are are schooled in uh, the world over. And children who grow up in war or terrible poverty or um, any kind of oppression um, uh, have to learn these things in order to um, uh, preserve any sense of dominion over their own soul. And because of that, not all, but but some of those children then can take the gift of that very porous heart that they um, learn to develop. Some will just armor themselves and just turn to stone. Others, in a sort of counterintuitive move, become more porous so that they can take in even more information and they become almost painfully empathic. Um, but it does allow them to read um, how things are not just for themselves, but for people in the world, people who are suffering, people who are in need, people they love. Um, so they can become quite beautiful um, gifts um, that we um, both inherit, and uh, but but also have to invest a good deal of our life um, working on so that they remain gifts rather than things that just make us harsh or bitter or cynical or, um, as I said, just completely armored. So, Wayne, there's something that I'm very, very interested in that I want to hear what you have to say about, which is here you are, whether it's one-on-one -on -one with people or in your writing, and you're reflecting back to people their beauty and their unique gifts and potential to make a difference. And yet what I've noticed both in myself and in other people is that there's this armoring often or a block of some kind or some way that we just, it's so hard for us to let in how fabulous we actually are and how much other people love us. 
there's like something in us that puts up like shields up, you know, like, okay, great, right. let's, let's move on. What is it that you see? What is that thing in people that makes it so hard to take in love? And then more importantly, how do we start loosening it? You know, Tammy, I think it's so, I think it's so old and so ancient. You know, we can certainly point to a lot of things in our culture that, um, uh, we can very easily say, well, you know, this, this, and that, and and the other, you know, certainly lead to people feeling less worthy. You know, you see the um, the glossy Photoshop magazines that uh, make so many young women feel so inadequate in terms of their um, body image, or um, you know, certain images of uh, what men are supposed to do or be. Uh, that make so many young boys feel uh, ashamed uh, of themselves right out of the bat. But but then I go to something like like the Catholic Mass, where um, where the the central moment uh, of of the Mass is is communion, um, and 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 in the Catholic tradition, the serving of communion is preceded by people before they take communion saying um, Lord I am not worthy to receive you but only say the word and I shall be healed that's what people say before they take communion God I am not worthy to receive you but only say the word and I shall be healed and what I find fascinating about that is that, you know, like every tradition, you know, there are, there are very beautiful things and really um, uh, horrific things in every religious tradition. Uh, and Lord knows there's a lot, a lot of sins we could list um, uh, that the Catholic Church has committed and we would probably run out of paper. Um, but this particular one is so elegant for me because... Once people say that, then nobody's allowed to say anything. The priest doesn't say anything. Uh, nobody. You take communion, and then you sit down, and then you sit in silence with that particular choice point. You're bringing all of that unworthiness, that sense that um, wherever it comes from, wherever it got planted, you know, St. Augustine said it was original sin. I don't really believe that at all um, um, but there is something inside of us that can feel so in in the face of God knows what the magnificence of the universe uh, the beauty of what happens um, in, in springtime the uh, the courage of, of, of the most noble people we know where we somehow compare ourselves to um, to God or to the divine or to um, our, our Buddha nature and we find ourselves wanting and we take refuge in that unworthiness and the fact that that right at the center of the mass people get to say that out loud I'm not worthy um, nevertheless um, just say the word and I will be healed and of course through to the word healed is I will be whole and it's not even that I'll be made whole I'll remember that I'm whole I will 
eat this bread, drink this wine, and in that transformational process, remember the wholeness that I forgot. And that choice point, that aching choice point, is one that every human being, I think, probably wakes up with and before they go to bed have to face at least once every day of their life, which is why it made its way right into the very heart of the Mass and it stayed there as long as it has because there's something so deeply, achingly true about that particular um, dilemma that we all live with, that both are true, that we feel really unworthy, and that we can be whole instantly at the same time. And again, where do we put our heart's attention? Where do we choose our first fidelity? Do we put it on our unworthiness, in which case we don't go to the table? and take communion why bother but if we make the choice to go and remember that we're whole then then we're different and then what we can do is different and who will be is different and the world will be different because we've been different and I think everybody alive faces that wrestles with that um, struggles with that um, choice point and again you know, with good, loving, close, honest, honorable friends, um, we help remind one another of our worth when we forget. Um, and that's part of the communion of deep friendship, the Anamkara that, um, that John, you know, O'Donohue spoke about so beautifully. Um, it's that choice point that that the, the, that that our sacred friendships, um, uh, we take that choice point in our hands as we would sort of a small uh, bird, and we tend to that tender, tenderest part of being human. Now, Wayne, when you and I were talking on the phone a few days ago, you mentioned something really interesting to me. You said that. You wrote this book and created an audio program on the Sabbath, encouraging people to take a day a week where they were not in the busyness of life, but instead attending to their hearts and souls. And that the feedback you got from so many people who read the book and listened to the audio program was, love that work, Wayne, and yet people weren't really practicing the Sabbath because they were too busy. They didn't have time. Love they... this book. Greatest book I ever read. <laughs> yeah, but I don't really have time to slow down. And that you were trying to piece together, well, what's going on here? And I'm curious if you can tell us what you discovered about how people love the idea so much, but yet don't really take the time to do it. Yeah, I mean it's heartbreaking uh, because so many uh, good people that uh, that I know, that you know, that we all know, um, you know, who are uh, bringing their gift to the world and and, and feel uh, empowered to do it. Um, you know, parents everywhere, teachers, doctors, nurses, social workers, um, anybody who helps anybody. Um, People are uh, out, out there trying to bring what they can 
to the world, and at the same time, because of the enormity of the problem um, and our excruciating awareness of the problem, um, and because of some of our theologies and the culture, for whatever reason, there's no permission that ever quite comes in for us to take that time. There's always one more thing to do. There's always um, several things left on the to-do list. Um, and so there's never really a good time to stop. And so people sort of sheepishly say, well, I, I really love to, but I just, I just, I just can't find the time. Um, and I was curious about what this this incessant lack of permission um, it was all about, um, because part of it is that, of course, you know, in, in the world, um, uh, there's a lot of demands being made on a lot of people in the workforce uh, as productivity increases, and they lay off people. People are required to do more and more at their work, and it is true they're not they're not you know getting actual permission to take uh, time off. But beyond that, what's the dialogue between? me and me uh, that uh, doesn't allow me to say okay that's now it's time um to stop and and it felt like it had something to do with the fact that we stop when we feel like we've done what we can or we stop when we feel like we've done enough for now um but we don't seem to have that internal thermostat working in our bodies or in our visceral memories anymore i mean i remember when i was a kid um you know when my um you know my parents or my aunts and uncles or my grandparents would be sitting around talking and you know you're a kid and you hear you know adults talking and you know they'd often say well that's you know that's enough for a day or that's close enough for government work or <laughs> whatever you know whatever they would say but it was clearly the end of the day that was it the whistle would blow you know and they were done and then they would go off and you know they'd have a couple of drinks play cards um you know have a barbecue whatever that was it for the day um what i what i'm seeing over and over again is that there is no whistle that blows in, in, in people's lives, there is no um, okay. That's enough for today. It's as if the thermostat is somehow broken, and there's no there's no device to tell the the boiler to stop making heat because the house is warm enough. And without a working thermostat, it ends up burning the house down because it just keeps overheating. And it seems like that's where people are getting caught, is that there's no internal mechanism that says, okay, that's enough for today. There isn't that sense, okay, I'm done. That was a good day. You know, there's more to do tomorrow, but that was enough. And they put your head down and you have a good night's sleep. You know, most people have a, a little pad next to their bed where they jump up at 2 in the morning and, and write something down in some illegible script <laughs> in the dark, uh, you know, so that in the morning they can remember some ridiculously important thing that they forgot that's now on their to-do list and people actually wake up behind. Um, <laughs> I mean, how can you wake up behind? But that's that's the way people feel because there's no... 
it'll be enough once we've done everything that we can do. But because of the tyranny of access of the world through our technologies, through emails and texts and um, tweets and cell phones and voicemails, the world doesn't allow us free access to sufficiency. The world is always putting something else on our plate. And so if we're waiting for things to be done or finished or completed before we can then rest, we'll never rest. Which is why it was a commandment in the religious traditions, because even this isn't new. People then needed a commandment to say, well, it doesn't matter. Once the sun hits the horizon in the Hebrew Sabbath on a Friday night, that's when you stop. You don't stop when you finish the emails. You don't stop when you get the project done. You don't stop when you finally, um, you know, fix the uh, fix the garage. You don't stop, you know, once you finally whatever it is. Um, you stop because living things can't live without stopping. Nothing alive goes, moves, grows in that way. I mean, the only thing that grows in that way is cancer. I mean, unrestricted, undifferentiated speed and growth is the sort of biological definition of cancer. And and in a way, if there's no mechanism, no enzyme, no marker for when we can stop, then we just go until our body collapses on us and then that becomes our sabbatical. And so seeing this over and over and over and over again with people, um, my conversations turn from um, from talking about the Sabbath to talking about what can be enough um, for this church congregation. What can you do and still feel like you have been church for this company what can you do today this quarter this year and feel like you've done um a a good piece of work um and still be able to live in time with our friends and our children and drink deep from the well of being alive Um, if we don't know what enough feels like we never ever feel permission to stop Well, Wayne, I think on that note, our conversation has been enough. (laughs) Never, never. It's never enough, Tammy. I always want more. (laughs) I've been talking with Wayne Muller. He has worked with Sounds True to create three beautiful audio programs. The Spiritual Gifts of a Painful Childhood, Reflections and Practices, to help us find the seeds of wisdom within the pain of our experiences. A program called How Then Shall We Live? Four simple questions that reveal the beauty and meaning of our lives. And a program on the Sabbath, restoring the sacred rhythm of rest and delight. Wayne, it's always wonderful to talk with you, and I appreciate this reminder of our wholeness just by sitting with you and having this conversation. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure, Tammy. 
Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.